Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh, yeah. Just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this. We just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1305, with guests Marcel de Vries and Rene Van Osnabrugge. Recorded Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, and it's .NET Rocks. Howdy, howdy, howdy. As it usually is. It, it, as it often is. Often. You and me together in a foreign country. Doing a thing in a, in a wooden box. In a fishbowl. Yeah. Which kind of isn't really watertight as far as fishbowls go. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah. But it, it, it is like, a, it's a, what I like is this time it's plywood, right? It's plywood. Yeah. It, it, it feels like we're on a home improvement show. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it was built in just a couple hours. So We're at Techorama, which mm-hmm. is a great conference, and yep. a lot of our friends are here, and you should have been here too. Mm-hmm. But uh, just in case you weren't, we have some of the best speakers at Techorama here uh, coming up. But first, it's Better No Framework. Awesome. All right, my friend. What do you got in mind today? What are you going to shock and stun me with? (laughs) Well, if you go to 1305.pwop.me, that brings you to a a very cool project that I just learned about. This is Jason Roberts' feature toggle. Oh, interesting. And it's uh, simple, reliable feature toggles in .NET. So, and uh, I guess uh, Marcel just gave me this... uh, as a as a uh, better know framework, so I don't know too much about it, but maybe you can tell me about it because you talk about it in your show. Yeah, I'm going to ch- talk about it uh, in my session. Um, so the framework is is used to build feature toggles in your application so that you can turn certain features in your software on and off. And that's all the way from the business model to the UI. Yeah, so you can yeah. use it anywhere Find in your it. code. Yeah, and you can use it in your uh, Razor syntax, for example. You can use it yeah. just in your uh, backend code, um, and you can Great. decide then how you want to turn the features on and off. Sure. Um, so you it's can a expose booleans that can be bound to yeah, checkboxes it's, it's, and things. Yeah. yeah. And you Great. can also use it in config, or you can uh, do it on the fly. So you can have like a live toggle switch, uh, which is pretty awesome because That's then cool. you can turn off, a f- turn on, and turn off a feature right away in your application. It doesn't seem like it should be too difficult to do that kind of thing, but no. why? Why do you need a, a feature toggle framework? Well, the reason you would use a feature toggle framework instead of just if statements is that you have more control over how you work with these features. So, but for I example, mean, if boolean you deploy- properties would be. 
Well, boolean properties would could work, but you need something in configuration, for example. And sí. when you do continuous delivery, you want to uh, push your code out uh, with all the toggles on, or some of the toggles on or off, um, yep. in some different ways. I get and, it. and you like to have a logging mechanism when they get flipped. Like, there's a lots of the. It's one of those things where, on the surface, it looks simple, and yep, as you go right. deeper into doing it well, yeah. Uh, and I'm finding. Uh, operations folks now where we're giving them dashboards so that they can sort of see the internal state of the app and it's a great place to put the toggles as yeah. well plus uh, like transaction testers hey just uh, run me an end to end transaction that yeah. kind of thing yeah, that sounds good and, it's cool and stuff the, and the basic thing is that there are so many frameworks out there that you just yeah can pick and choose instead of writing your own and yeah. that's, that's the main important thing I say right. just go look and find something that works for you a little less code very good right. feature toggle Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1275, the one we did with Robert Schieffer back in March. We talked about MS Deploy because somebody needs to believe. And I think he did a great job of it, too. You yeah, know, he did. All this time, conversations we've had about Octopus. It's right. like, hey, you know, the Microsoft product has some capabilities. It does. They're just not particularly well documented. And this comment comes from James Holland, who says, thank you for the great show. This really opened my eyes to deployment options that are sitting right under my nose yep. in Visual Studio. I found the section about DACPAC is particularly useful. That was the whole doing database deployments. And really appreciate the discussion about the hard cases of changing database schema. Rob's DACPAC article that he posted in another comment was also a great read. I mean, there's, there's been quite a conversation yeah. going on in this yep. particular show. I've been doing database deployments the hard way for many years by manually writing SQL change scripts. While this gives the maximum amount of control and safety, that is not true. The maximum <laughs> amount of control, but you're just not that safe, dude. Right. There is a price. Yes, the price is don't make any mistakes. Yeah. As long Each, as you're awesome, yep, as long as you're perfect, as long, as long as the stars align, it's yeah. all going to be great. Each script is time-consuming to create and requires a deep understanding of the consequences of the different types of schema changes. This often leads to team specialization, wherein a team member becomes the primary or even sole database developer. It's like being banished to Siberia. Yeah. You made, some, you made a mistake. You were standing close to the database when the last guy quit. <laughs> and now, now this is your entire life. Not that I'm bitter or angry in, in a world. Way. <laughs> in a world made of people who hate database people. You are the database people person <laughs> <laughs> it's funny we're in a movie theater sorry 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 he's just a touch to nerve yeah right? get it. Days, uh, yeah. james you're killing me here with strong benefits of vertical slice feature development it's not acceptable to have a bottleneck around the database development work and the mindset and tools discussed in this show demonstrate there are now better ways to do this yes there are mm -hmm. My conclusion is automate all the things. <laughs> really does include automate all the SQL things. Yep. I, James, I'm sorry. I just want to apologize. I went off on a rant in your comment. Your comment was great. It yes. did not need my decoration, <laughs> but I had a good time decorating it anyway. But yeah, we're totally on board, man. What, yep. you're, what you're talking about is absolutely true, and it's exciting to see folks come to the same conclusions that managing SQL is part of this DevOps process as well. So thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We wash our mouse balls with him. So. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a vision of mouse balls just like that. 
Ah, oh, they're back. Wasn't that a... a, a, a yes, uh, it was a memo. A famous memo about keeping your mouse balls clean. clean. See, the generation of mice, and I'm talking about a computer mouse, before these laser ones, they had little balls in them that we would roll around. And they accumulated gunk. They accumulated lint, and you had to keep your mouse balls. You have specific instructions on how to wash wash your mouse balls. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was thinking of Marilyn Monroe, who, after being served matzo ball soup three times in a row, said, is there any other part of the matzo you can eat? (laughs) (laughs) Okay It really is a family show, we promise (laughs) Um, Marcel de Vries and René Van Osnabrugge are here So let me introduce them As the co-founder and CTO of X-Spirit Marcel de Vries spends most of his time Looking at how new emerging technologies A shift in mindset and a new way of work Can help organizations get software in production faster helping organizations transform toward a high-speed, innovative, and productive organization has become his passion. Marcel loves to learn new technologies and teach others what he's learned. Besides his work as CTO, Marcel also works as a consultant in the field of application lifecycle management, cloud and web scale application architectures, and cross-platform enterprise mobile app development with Xamarin. Rene van Osnabrugge works as lead ALM consultant at Xspirit in the Netherlands. He helps companies to improve their software process, and he looks broadly, so always looking broadly. So the way of work, the way people communicate, how Scrum is applied are equally important to how tools like build servers, Visual Studio, source control, and the like are used. In the end, it's all about the people and the process, not about the tool. Well, it's sometimes about the tool. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the time, it's people in process. Yeah, don't, don't, don't start with it. <laughs> <laughs> but people can be tools also. I, suppose. Uh, yeah, so. uh, I don't like to call people tools. I used to have That's, comments uh, in my uh, code that said, this code was generated by a tool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was you? Me. Yeah, I was, okay, that that was, was the tool. Okay, okay, Get you off the hook. Okay. Metaphorically speaking. Uh, it's may, maybe better than a resource because yeah. companies tend to call the people resources. That's, that's not good. That, that's not it's good so as well. Personal. So, yeah, exactly. So, you guys are talking about continuous improvement. Just another lo- uh, continuous yeah, uh, topic. <laughs> continuous <laughs> this, continuous that. You need to start somewhere and then continue doing it because right. otherwise <laughs> it's not very useful. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, so continuous improvement. You guys are speaking about this here? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, doing a session on uh, what I co- like to call continuous delivery 3.0. Um, We're still, most of us are still working on one. Yeah, right. exactly five. my point. So yeah. that's why I called it 3.0. Mm-hmm. We discussed maybe Vnext. Okay, or no, but I kind of like the three just because it gives a hint to everybody. We've come a long way on this, but maybe we should go over. So what was 1.0 of delivery? I think that 1.0 of delivery, I'm not sure where we are now. Uh, maybe we are in 1.0, maybe we are in 2.0, or maybe we are in a, on the verge of, I right. don't know. But I think that people started with continuous delivery a long time ago, mm-hmm. but doing it with scripts. Like, okay, we have a PowerShell here, and we have a batch file there, and right. we, we just glue it together, and then we, we do our delivery by hitting a button or some brand inside our company that, that does that. Uh, I mean, I think it's a very transformative moment once a person is out of the loop. Yeah. Right? Like the, as soon as everybody can do a build, because I remember 
build masters, hmm. right? There was one person who knew when to sacrifice the chicken, right? <laughs> and, 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 and if that person went on vacation, we don't do builds. Like, it's just that that was all there was to it. So this idea that you got it automated to the point where nobody needed to know anything, like you could do a build by accident. Oops, press the build button, right? And, and it just happened, and it was a good build. Like, but I would almost think 1.0 is, we've always built software. We just done it badly. Uh, yeah, I think so. That, nah, not badly, but definite, but it's more like... Less efficiently. It, not sufficient. Uh, people are working on their station, doing mm -hmm. a build, and maybe in a more advanced way, they have some kind of server, but one guy was doing the build. Mm, right. So I think that we're now on a, on the track that, that we can really automate the whole process from checking in the code towards releasing to production. Right. Um, And I think that uh, in, the, in, the, in the line of my talk, what I see happening a lot is that companies now transform to, okay, we have our process, mostly manual or mostly in the old-fashioned way, and let's try to optimize it. Right. So I think the most fair example here is, for example, test automation. People tend to have lots and lots of manual tests. Yes. So we need to automate because we have to move towards continuous delivery. Yep. So what our companies are going to do, they just buy a tool, sometimes a very, very expensive one, yes. and they are going to automate all the manual tests. So it's all GUI testing. But that's suboptimal, because it's just not giving all the results that you want to have, because GUI testing are uh, hard to create, yep. hard to maintain. They are slow in running. They are unstable, because the GUI tends to change. They don't necessarily tell you what broke. Exactly. So, so, but that's the, the, the step people are making. So they are moving towards automation, but they are doing it wrong. So instead of stepping back and looking, okay, how can we redo our process? For example, creating a bunch and bunch of unit tests, mm -hmm. which are fast and, and stable and stuff. They are going to optimize what they have. Uh, and I think that in continuous delivery 3.0, we have to look at all our processes and think, why are we doing this? And do we optimize it? Is how can we optimize it? And is this the best way, or do we need to step back and do it differently? Right. So, and that's that's. I think that you can apply this on many many. Uh, it aspects. seems like common sense. You would think that somebody who sets out to do continuous delivery is going to think about their process and do the most efficient thing possible. You would think. Yeah, but the thing is that it's also very human natural to just buy a tool and fix it. Yeah. I mean, so. Taking a step back and rethink what you're doing, that takes more courage, I think, than just buy a tool and fix right. it. Well, especially because it, you, it, you're already working, right? Like, I, I feel like most people, once they get, it's like once the network's up, don't touch it. Leave it alone. Like, the idea that we'd ever look at it again, it's like close enough. And I, and I feel most build processes, most in the infrastructure of building and operating software, it's like you get it up and then you leave it alone. Just focus on writing code. I just I I've never found a way to build in a ritual of when do we go back and evaluate this again, try and make it better. Are we doing it in a good way? And and that's I think very natural to people that you have this process and you start optimizing parts of that process mm -hmm. instead of stepping back. What is the process that we have in place? So uh, I found this analogy with uh, a fish in a water tank. The fish will not think about the fact that it's swimming in water. Well, we don't think why we have all like five or six environments that we need to do testing yeah. anymore because that became natural to us and we try to optimize how we can set up these environments for example mm -hmm. and then we spent a lot of time and money in provisioning tools and all that stuff but why not rethink 
should I actually still use like five environments before I go to production? Shouldn't I just do it completely differently and now start testing in production perhaps? Wow. Now you're just talking crazy talk. Right. Mr. Like that's, <laughs> I, and I've flown that line past a couple operations people. Heck, I've been that operation person. Our answer is no. Well, be, be honest. Many developers test their stuff in production. Oh, right? yeah. So most <laughs> testing is done by customers. They but, just didn't know they were testing. So perhaps you should optimize that process and then rethink that and, and make some safeguards in there. Yeah. And, for example, use feature toggles to turn stuff yeah. off if it's breaking uh, your customer experience. Well, and the, the argument I've made successfully to operations people around this has been, this is a big feature, and we do not know how much more stuff you're going to need to provision for it, and we don't want to tip over when we launch. So we need to start getting some numbers you know, of the load it's going to generate against real data in production. There's no other way to do it. You don't show it to the user. No. You give the, the ops guy a knob so that he yep. can run it for a little while and shut it off again, right? The feature toggle effect. So that we could, but the main thing was it's our goal to gather enough data to be able to provision properly for this right. feature. Yeah, and, and if you then cultivate that concept, then all of a sudden we call that dark launching. Right. And now all of a sudden we have this concept that we can then embrace and say, okay, and how can we do that in a very optimized way? Yeah. Um, and then you use feature toggles and you use traffic management and you use app insights, for example, to get your telemetry data. Mm -hmm. And based on that, you make conscious decisions if I can actually turn it on to the user yes. or not. When did the user get to see it? So feature toggles I get, the ability to turn a feature off and on. App Insights is instrumentation a la Azure. Yeah. Right? Well, it's, it's more than that. It, it has more like four components that you use in yeah. App Insights. I mean, App Insights is on the one hand side performance insights. So how is this stuff performing? Mm -hmm. uh, but it also gives you insights in, for example, your call change. So right. it gives you information if, if you are slow or is the stuff that you're dependent on slow. Right. Okay. So that gives you more insights in the whole chain of, of yeah, stuff that's going on. What's actually taking time here? The other thing is that when stuff goes bad you have diagnostics in there. So you can go in and then you can find those diagnostic events. And then the great thing about App Insights is that you can then say, okay, take me like five minutes back in time, what happened? Right. So you can then see all the events surrounding what went wrong mm -hmm. and that can lead up to what actually gone bad, right? So right. It, it will help you figure out what's going on. And, and, and what I particularly also like, and then I think is the fourth dimension of App Insights, is that you can also instrument your code for usage statistics. So not just for failure, but not, not for failure, how but are they also using the feature? How are they using the feature? So I'm switching this feature on. Are people actually finding this feature? Right. Are they clicking it? Are they using it the way I supposed to, uh, the way they supposed to use it? Right. So, and I think that also in the light of optimizing, uh, I see many, many customers that have lots and lots of screens. They have a legacy application. Sure. They have 1,200 screens or more. So the first question that, that I ask them is, how many are they used? Yeah. How many of these? Can, I, I remember just taking stuff out of apps to see if anybody screamed. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to remove yeah. this report and wait for the yells, right? Cause, <laughs> and then sometimes you just, there wasn't yells for months. Yeah. Many, yeah, no. yeah, and and they, they want to they want to do automation, and they are really looking off the pile of work, like twelve hundred screens that all have to be tested and stuff. Right. And I say, how can you know for sure that all those twelve hundred screens are used? Right. Just put in some instrumentation, see if they are used. Sim simple counters from, uh, and then start using it. Maybe two hundred screens are used, and thousand are not. Are not. So it, yeah. so you're saving a lot, a lot of time. But I think we're we're getting back to the scientific method around software, right? You, when you 
as a developer, design some feature, it's very uh, much a hypothesis. I believe that the users will do it this way. Mm. And then you actually put it out there and, and presume they will. Without, you know, this kind of instrumentation can show you they're using it a way you didn't think of. And it's, all go it's going to kill us all in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, yeah. and it can be even better. Like if you, do, if you do some playing around with that, for example, what Marshall talks about in this session on A-B testing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you make some random choice of, okay, now I'm putting the feature like this. Yep. Or otherwise I put the feature like the other way. So a blue button or a red button. Yep. Let's see what, what, what users click the most. Yeah. And choose that one for the future it's versions. It's the same way that marketing wants to test different ads. Yeah. And you see in that space that, for example, the whole notion of lean startup and building minimal viable products right. is the whole thing that now can help you driving all this DevOps stuff and, 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 and yeah, be better in delivering stuff fast to the business. You think, I mean, when you're a developer team of one, you can obviously do whatever you want because you're, you're the guy in charge. When you start involving more people in teams, do you think that people become a little more hesitant to make changes that they think might be good changes? You might have a really good idea, and oh, but I'm, I probably shouldn't make that change because I don't know yeah. who else that's going to affect or, you know, I got to go get permission to do this. They're especially hesitant if you don't have any tests. Yeah. At least showing that stuff isn't broken. Right. And then the other thing is that uh, you want to talk with your team and see what they think about it. And right. then, uh, yeah, one of the things that you can do is say, well, just give it a try. Sure. Just right. try and see if it makes a difference. Yes Although, or no. And I wonder if you're hinting at this, Carl. There's also a presumption that somebody has a plan. Right. Right. Uh, like when that's you, right. I, so many times you talk to a bigger organization, they say, well, the features came from the requirements team. Like, clearly they had a plan. It's right. like, oh, yeah. ah, they're making stuff up too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and as soon as that's sort of on the table that we could experiment, or yeah. more relevantly, we can get real feedback and go back to the requirements guy and say, we watched how people actually use yeah. this. This is the data. Yeah. And, th and that gives a new opera, uh, more a new discipline that when we start working with the business, let's look at what is the minimal viable thing that we can put in production. Right. Now, add, for example, App Insights or any other tool that you can use to get telemetry data on the usage of that feature. And then based on that, put it in production, perhaps use uh, traffic management, for example, to get only a certain percentage of traffic right. on, on that part of your site. Uh, with the A-B testing, you pick certain cohorts uh, uh, of users, and based on that, you then say, okay, what did we learn? Are those users actually using that feature, yes or no? Oh, we see that they're using it a little bit different than we thought it would be, so now we make plans to do one iteration better. And then based on that, we add telemetry again, and we keep on learning. And that's the whole notion of, what is it, quantitative learning? Uh, that's it, the whole way that's been described in sure. the book of... Uh, the usage statistics is an interesting angle because you, you really do have to sort of be a scientist, Richard, and this sure. is what you were saying, that you have to have a big enough sample to know that it's relevant, right? Yeah. And you have to be able to not just look at what they're doing right now or what they're doing today or what they did this week, but over a period of time. Yeah. And it's very easy to make wrong decisions on yeah. the data because if you only have like 10 users on your website and you see two doing something interesting, right. well, is that the way you should just change everything? I yeah, mean, exactly. that's, that's tricky. So yeah, coming to the relevance of the data, you need to understand the data better. Um, and that, that's the tricky part. Um, and, and a large enough sample set to be relevant. Exactly. Right? I mean, right. it's so much of our software development is done anecdotally. Yep. It's the guy who screamed loudest, right? And the squeaky oh yeah. wheel gets the new feature. Here's yeah. another problem. Your usage statistics 
are become irrelevant when the thing you were testing has changed. Right. And all that so old data has to be thrown away. All that old data has to be thrown yeah. away. You've got to start all over again. So exactly. And another, it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. That's, that's a, a great might thing. be another reason why somebody would be hesitant to make changes. I mean, I, can, I see this all the time. I mean, people just get, like, paralyzed. Oh, I know this is what the thing needs to be done, but I, I don't know if I want to do it. Right. But, yeah. but you can also use, for example, what the VSDS team in, uh, did for their products, uh, mm-hmm. Visual Studio Team Services. For example, that, is, that was a great anecdote that really opened my eyes on how usage statistics can make a product better. Right. They had that experience like, okay, you can create a new account and then uh, you could, okay, happy, happy you, you have an account. And they had an 80% drop-off of people at, who that actu- at that moment who actually did not create a new project to right. start working. So they created an account, and then they stopped. So mm. they changed that experience to, okay, we create an account, and then we pop you up a new message dialogue like, okay, create your first new project. Right. Because they didn't know they needed to make a project. Right. Exactly. The workflow wasn't obvious. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then they only had a 50% drop-off. And then we they changed it again. And now they have a 30% drop-off. So they are yeah. constantly looking at that so data. We do this at e-commerce all the time. This is pipelining, right? Yeah. Pipelining is all about, you, you start, you analyze people who, who buy stuff and you say, hey, they look at at least five products. How do I make it easier for people to see enough stuff to make a decision to buy? And, yeah. it, and it's very common to use in marketing for, for ages. I mean, uh, you had all these different tools that you could stuff into your website mm-hmm. uh, and and marketeers are using that all already like 15 years or so sure. I mean and, uh, but to just and move it over sudden, to regular applications yeah and now it's new to us all of yeah. a sudden but it's been there for like ages we're just reinventing the wheel well that's but, what we're but, constantly doing to solve but, it, but the <laughs> idea that we have a sense of workflow and we help people go down that workflow so that more people are successful with our software I mean that's that's a pretty good idea oh yeah they're not buying per se you know, they, they have to be there but to be more successful to be less painful to be successful I think that's that's a very interesting thought. Uh, you mentioned traffic management a couple of times, and I think one of the aspects that uh, folks run into that traffic management is important on is when you want to do some of this testing and production. There's always a certain class of user that the operations guys like, but not those guys. Right? Those guys, everything's got to be perfect. Like we have an SLA with this customer that you know they can't see anything ever breaking. So being able to to have a more experimental server in the cluster yeah. that that certain classes of users will go to, guys who sign up for beta or an insiders or something like that, and so they see that, and other people never see any of that. They're right. always the very stable solution. Yeah. And you, but you need to architect for that. I mean, you need to architect like your, what, what we try to call skill units. So right. uh, if you go cloud native and you work in the cloud and you have this notion of your, your user base is on a certain set of machines or a group of machines, right. or if, if you're using Azure websites on a set of uh, machines that are uh, powering Azure websites. Mm-hmm. And then what you can do is you can then say, okay, let's create, uh, especially with, with Azure websites, create deployment slots. Right. Now, a deployment slot is not necessarily for deployment. You can just have multiple environments just running pl- parallel to your website. Right. And there you can set up your experiments. And then you can either use traffic management to say, I would like to have a certain percentage of my user go over to that new uh, slot that I created. Right. Or you could say, well, I have special users and I will send an email to the special users that they need to hit that particular website. Right. Different, slightly different URL. It's a slightly different right. URL and all of a sudden it then goes to that deployment yeah, slot. Yeah, it's insider.website.com and so yeah. they feel special right. and you're actually using them as testers. Yeah. Be honest, be honest. That's what happened with the whole insiders program. Totally. Yeah, exactly. But testing in production has become so common. Yeah. And, but it, you know what I like about the insiders program? 
you know you're being tested on, as opposed to what a lot of people are doing, which is like, throw it out there. Let's see who dies. Right? <laughs> and, and, for, and sometimes I actually have work to do, right? Yeah. Like, I have a machine with an insider's build of, of Win 10 on it. Yeah. I don't count on that machine. I have another machine with the normal version of Win 10, so that when that one's being weird, and sometimes it's being weird, the, I have a reliable machine to work from. Yeah. So at least you have some confidence of what's going on. It's being public about this, making it a VIP thing or a perk thing, I think it's a good idea. But well, more importantly, people know, hey, you're part of the process of making the product Yeah, better. as long as they know, right? Yeah. Yeah. And want to do and that. And they want to help. And they're just not that excited. That, that's the whole idea behind an MVP program, behind an RD program. Right. We get to, uh, yeah, test the stuff that's that's out there and test their or, uh, yeah, validate their assumptions on what we would like or not, and then based on that feedback, make it better. You get to see it first. You get to know about it first. You get to be burned by it first. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have the skip marks everywhere. That's right? it. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it uh, is now? It must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to toggle the funny feature of this joke. Off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was on. That's what that was. Oh, okay. Uh, it's actually time to give a Component One studio away to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Grape City Active Reports, the very first sponsor of this show. All oh, those Active years Reports, ago. Yeah. When it was Data Dynamics. That's awesome. And, uh, of course, it's still around. Active Reports is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Zane Abbey. Congratulations, Zane. Golf clap for you, sir. Get some clappers. Yeah. Golf clappers, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Zane just won uh, the uh, Component One Studio. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends there. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. and every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member, present company excluded. Yeah, <laughs> we don't let, this be, they don't let the, uh, the guests win, I'm afraid. However, we do like to hear what the guests would buy with $5,000 in technology. So, Marcel, what would you buy? With $5,000. Well, what I would buy is, I, I heard that now the drivers are good on the service book, right? Yes, they are. Yeah, so I think I will now take the plunge in my nice. service book. Probably, what, what was it, about $3,000 to get the... Fully loaded. The problem is, I, this, the, we got one here. This was one that this was the high end, the top of the line during the keynote, right? And I ordered this so fast, I found out the screen came off after I ordered it. Uh, <laughs> That right after that, like a month later, they made a terabyte version, a higher end. One. Right. Yeah. So this is the 512 gig version. There is a there is a terabyte version as well. I wonder how many times the listeners have heard that story. It's <laughs> it continues to be true. <laughs> but I would love to have the terabyte one because uh, I I just found out that 500 uh, is yeah. still not enough. Renee, how about you? What would you buy with 5,000? I'm actually not, maybe I should not say it on this show, but I'm not really a gadget freak. Oh, but, right. uh, on, on Build Conference, I had the opportunity to, to do the HoloLens Academy, oh, yeah. and I think I would buy such a thing. Yeah. Because nice. I, was, I was so mind blown by the thing. Uh, 
looking yeah. at all the holographic pictures and the and the and the robot on my shoulder and we did it together, right? And, and we those did it was great. So you we 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 watched in the distance having people like a robo thing on their uh, shoulder and and you can follow that along and then all of a sudden we start talking to each other. Hey, do you see the guy over there with the blue thing on his shoulder? And then we go. Uh, Holy moly, what just happened? We are looking in virtual reality, <laughs> talking each o- with hey, each other you about s- that. You want to screw moly. with a bunch of people wearing HoloLenses <laughs> in the same room? Put up some mirrors. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where, where is my elephant? How come I can't see my elephant? That mirror is broken. Uh, <laughs> now, what would be even more fun is a mirror tied into the HoloLens, knowing the angle is on, and putting stuff up on the mirror. <laughs> No, we could do that. <laughs> we could oh, yeah. do that. We could do that. That would mess with people's reality in a big way. I just think yeah. coming into the room and hanging at mirrors and just <laughs> <screwing> <laughs> like you look like an idiot. You're right. You know, you, we tend to think that we would tend to think that the mirror mirrors, was broken. Mirror's broken. The brain would think, yeah. "What is? There's something wrong oh, with the mirror." That's it. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know. I gotta think this December we're giving away a HoloLens. I, I gotta I, think. I, I don't know how we can. Yeah. Basically. Well, hopefully, I guess it's, it'll still be only the SDK edition. Yeah. So. Yeah. But it, whoever it is is going to want to be a developer. So. Well, we Who have knows? an extra one, I think. Well, maybe we'll see. We'll, we'll see, see what happens. I bet by December it'll be a little easier. Probably right. We gotta talk about tooling. I mean, we mentioned App Insights, the, the Azure product, which yeah. is great. What do you do for traffic management? Like, what's the product? Yeah, so in Azure, you ha- just have Traffic Manager. Right, so, so that is the tool. Yeah, that's a tool um, I've been using for certain customers. Um, so yeah, that, that's just easy configuration. You do it in the portal. Uh, especially with websites, it's, it's uh, very easy to do because, uh, what, like I talked about, the deployment slots, uh, they now build Traffic Manager inside of that. So right. meaning that I can now say, oh, I would like to have like 1% of traffic going to that particular deployment slot. Uh, and that works pretty neat. And uh, the thing is that the first time you hit that server, um, it will remember that, so you get a cookie. So that means that it's a sticky session on that server. Oh, goes there. Uh, so if, if um, well, the whole notion about traffic management is that they can do like a randomization of users that come by. So right. uh, it's not that I can pick and choose my users at this moment. It's just that you say, I want to have a random set of, let's say, 1% or 2% or even 10% of users right. that can go to this Can I set a number? I want 10 users? Uh, no, there's no a number of users, just a percentage. Okay. Okay, so you set a percentage, uh, and after that moment, it starts using more or less the DNS round-robin system to right. uh, uh, get the, the data around. to the right uh, location. I tell, you, I tell you something, and just as an aside, and I'm an old web performance guy, right? I've been yeah. doing this for a long time. And so as soon as I hear sticky session, I think bad, right? Because no. yeah. I've been educated <laughs> for a long time you know, and have taught a lot of people, look, as soon as you go sticky, as soon as you're hearing the machines, those machines tend to get overloaded. You, know? you get away from all of the advantages of multi-server. Right. And then the cloud comes along and messes that whole thing up. Well, why, why would you care? But you we, do, we use it now for a different reason, right? Yeah. I mean, in the past it was because we had session state, yes. and that was bad. And that so was that, bad. It was binding to the machine. Right. So it, and with traffic management, you're not specifically bound to that machine. You could just hit another server. That would not be a problem. Right. But the thing is that once a user gets one experience, you want to keep them on that experience yes. because you want to test if your uh, idea actually makes sense. Yeah. And they're they're not they necessarily putting to a server as you're putting to a version. Right. That's... Yeah, yeah, you know, I've realized still I have a bunch of instinct problems because right. I'm still thinking about hardware efficiency. Yeah. That just doesn't matter in the cloud anymore. The correct answer with the cloud is more. Just right. put on more. We more can cattle. get more. <laughs> more cattle, yeah. Feed the burgers into the system. More. 
<laughs> Feed the burgers into the system. That's good. Uh, yeah. Overheard on Dot and Rocks. Nice. <laughs> Somebody's okay. going to tweet. So, but there's another aspect to this. The first time I really heard continuous delivery, like we're talking about the 1.0, was the Heroku solutions, right? Which really weren't .NET friendly, but it was this idea of you check in code, automated tests run, and they're in it, and immediately going into the cloud to, to do all of this. Do we, can we really think about this on-prem, this continuous delivery model? Is it just the cloud is so essential to making so much of this work? No, I, I don't think so in particular, because you, you can basically do everything if you, Maybe not the 3.0 stuff, right. because that, that involves the cloud, in my opinion. But, but I think if you look at the continuous delivery pipeline, where you check in your code, you do your builds, you, right. do your, uh, you run your unit tests, you do your maybe your other, other kinds of testing, and then you deploy to some kind of test server, and maybe you run some extra tests on that. Yep. Uh, maybe you spin up a new machine. Uh, you can do it with, with uh, on-prem as well, because you can also create a virtual machine on VMware or right. on uh, Hyper-V uh, yeah, and just sp spin it up with maybe a different uh, technology, but you can can still do it. Yeah, So I mean, it's not bound to the cloud. Really what it is is you're implementing cloud architecture in your own site. Yeah, and, and it becomes especially more simple uh, in the future when we have stuff like Azure Stack where we can just more or less yeah, do the same stuff as what we have in the cloud. Uh, and that or will help us a lot. And then you get a hybrid model, sure. or you do some do some cloud bursting. And, yeah. and if we look at it in the in the previous versions of TFS, we had something that was called lab management. It right. was there in 2010 or something. Yep, and it was. lab management was based on we have a uh, VHD with a whole environment installed on it. Mm -hmm. It's put in a library, and once I am entering my pipeline, I just spin up that library machine, create a new instance of it, deploy my software to it, and then run everything I want and just collect all the data from that machine. So we were basically doing the same stuff only on-prem. Right. The, the only place where the on-prem thing falls down is when you really want to burst. You know, I, I, if you really want scale. Yeah, I need, yeah. And, and for short duration. Right. Yeah. Like for me, the, the big thing we were doing is we had, a, we had a test lab now where the full regressive tests were 30 hours. Mm -hmm. So you could only run it on the weekend if we were running it on-prem. Right. And suddenly with the cloud, we were just lighting up yep. literally 100 instances of our system yeah. and then splitting the test across them all, and it ran for less than an hour. And you don't want to own that hardware because you only use it for an hour. Mm. Yeah, the fact that we, you know, and I think it cost us $120 yeah. right. for the runtime on that. Great. Just, and it was, it was hundreds and hundreds of servers. Like, this is utility computing. Oh, right? yeah. Just for the short duration, I need to do it because the time mattered. You know, for us, it was very much the longer you go from when the developer checks in the code to the developer getting the regression error reports back, the harder it is to fix it. Mm. So if we can get that time down, shorter and shorter and shorter. And we finally got it down to 15 minutes, which meant the guy checked in code, and by the time he came back from coffee, the report was already there. It's a so slow he, coffee machine. Yeah. <laughs> well, mostly he has to gloat with everyone else that he's checked in code. Right. Right. Oh, right. That yeah. takes time. Yeah. But the mo to me, the most important thing was he hadn't had a chance to work on something else. Yeah. So the code was still fresh in his mind when these complicated errors came back. And he's like, oh, oh I know what that yeah. is. Because right. yeah. if you wait a day, you might as well give it to somebody else. Like, I don't know, man. So that was true. yesterday. So it's your so time true. to fix goes down because down. you get earlier so feedback. So we are talking a lot about feedback loops. 
mm-hmm. um, and you see that the feedback loops that developers have these days are becoming more and more um, uh, in your face right away we now have the green squigglies even with the Roslyn stuff yeah. I mean you don't even have to compile and see that stuff might be broken now yeah, right. take that further and you have the feedback cycles of stuff going into production or in test systems mm-hmm. and it's so fresh in your mind so that you see the bug and say oh yeah I now know what to what to fix because um, yeah I forgot that, that right. part but it, if, if it, it was in the back like of your week, head while you were writing it it's like right. this is going to bite me it's going to bite me and then the errors come back it bit me yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then it. if you wait a week and you get some report back from a tester you first yeah. always go no it's not my fault and runs on my box right yeah. <laughs> and then from that you say okay now uh, we might have some tools that show me that the bug is actually there right. uh, so then I try to reproduce it and then based on that we go try and fix but it takes like hours more uh, of, of fixing work and it's I think there's also a lot of value in just combining the power of the cloud with the power on-prem. Mm-hmm. Because I have a lot of customers that say, ah, we can't do production on, uh, in the cloud and blah, blah, blah. But, right. but they still can do the dev and test in the cloud. Yeah, that, that burst test, that fast exactly. test in the cloud is fine, but the, the production data stays on-prem. Yeah. yeah, and with all the connections with VPNs and stuff to the cloud, it's very easy to just use that. The but the, you know, there's a huge leap here. We, we're, I'm describing, you know, we're talking about, I'm going to recreate the operational environment of an application multiple times in the cloud on demand. Right. I mean, how many people are there? To this, most people's servers are still precious, unique artifacts, right? Oh, yeah. That are carefully tuned and created, and they don't act, nobody actually knows how that thing was made. Like, don't pets. ever turn that off. Yeah, yeah. they are pets. They You're right. A, they have even pet names. They, they have, have pet names. Pet <laughs> names. That's they right. name them after after their favorite TV show characters yeah, and right. things, right? And then and they fear for them because they they can't recreate them. Yeah. So they, when machines become GUIDs, uh, <laughs> right? Then you're on the right they track. They are all in, yeah. We don't even we don't name anything. It's just a numbered sequence, right? And then they die. I mean, I like the deployment model of I build a new set of servers with a new version of the software. I get it all up and running, and then I transfer the DNS yeah. over and lynch the old machines because th- that's the way you know there's no secrets. It's all configuration as yeah. code. Yeah. And what, one of the things that you now see is that we are still talking about VMs. Yeah. But what you see, and that's one of the things that Rene will talk in his talk, is uh, about Dockerization. I mean, um, if you start using Docker, for example, instead of building these VMs all the time, mm-hmm. it's, it's just mind-boggling the time you can uh, save with that. Now, so are you using Docker with .NET? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, in my session, and it's all preliminary stuff because mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm now using the Windows uh, Server 2016 core. Yeah, uh, I'm still using the CTP4 like because two days ago the CTP5 came, yeah, so yeah, and I'm not risking my session. Nope. But, you, uh, you are a wise man. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I burned myself yep. <laughs> sometimes, but uh, this time I I create Windows, so I'm running Docker containers on a Windows machine. Nice. So that means the underlying operating system is Windows. Mm-hmm. So and what people sometimes tend to forget I have to run Windows inside my containers. I cannot right. run Linux yeah. on a Windows box. And until we actually have .NET Core for Linux, which we still don't really have. But then still, so we need to have uh, a Docker container on Linux. Right. It has a Docker uh, Linux operating system yeah. I don't want to gloss over what well. you just said. So you're saying, basically, you have Docker and the Docker product, not a not Microsoft containers or anything mm-hmm. like that, yeah. running on a Windows server hosting a Windows operating system. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing is that and that's server 2016, yeah. which yeah. is still in the 
which is still the CTP. The version. Yeah. yeah. And underneath the covers, there is Windows containers. Yeah. But they have made them Docker compatible. Yeah. So meaning that we can just use the Docker command line, we can use the Docker commands and all the Docker stuff that we know and love, right. uh, but we can apply it now to Windows. And what is really great about that about that stuff, and that that's also the mind-boggling thing, first of all, they are immutable. So I create a, a simple text file and I can create a container. Right publish my stuff in the container and then, then it's an immutable thing. So what Marshall likes to call it a bakery. So we bake a container yeah, and then done. we just put it somewhere in a hub and we can just pluck it out of the hub and generate images so of it. In, and one of the ways I've heard containers described is this is VMs with configuration as code in mind. Right. And, right. and, and one of the things that's important here is that if we talk about continuous delivery 3.0, mm -hmm. we think that Continuous delivery now is about scripting stuff, getting stuff out of the door, mm -hmm. uh, scripting your containers, script, or, uh, sorry, scripting your VMs and all that stuff, uh, scripting that you install stuff on the machine. Right. But now what we do is we change that process, and instead of having like the build and then deploy, what we do is we have the build process, then we bake our image, right. and then the image will go to dev, test, uh, whatever, pre-prod or whatever, uh, but it's immutable. So uh, there are no changes. Uh, other than different people hating that stuff. Right. Um, and we can assure ourselves that when it goes to production, it behaves the same. Um, and that can save a lot of time as well. Um, yeah. So there are big changes there, and it's completely rethinking the process that we've done um, and applying new techniques and new technologies to uh, what we call then go to 3.0, because right. that's the new uh, way of thinking. Because the, the new definition way of around that. the container comes from production then. It's like, yeah. this is what needs to be there for this to be production level and developers work on the same exactly. structured container. Exactly. So instead of uh, doing the F5 in Visual Studio and running it on their local machine, right. they will just bake a container and start up that container right. to debug. Who and owns the container design in the organization? Then? It, it, well, it's a DevOps team, so you do it together, Everybody right? does it together. Uh, it's not the like main the thing is that it's clearly, like, you only need to do text compare to figure out if containers are different, mm. right? Because right. it is just a, a manifest of what's in the container. Yeah. Exactly. And it, but it's also, of course, a, comp a composition of multiple containers. There right. are probably not one container running, but right. there no. are many containers with di many different applications. And, and that's also part of it in my session that I'm not publishing a website into a container, which is great, but I'm, I'm extracting a bit of it. So I have a website, and that traditionally I have a website that calls a service, and the service calls a data layer, etc. Right. So I just pulled out that service, and I thought, okay, maybe this service is a calculation service. Mm -hmm. So I will take out that bit and put that calculation in, inside a container. Right. And I have a batch program running that starts up a container, the latest version, sends some, uh, something to an Azure queue. That container starts up, pulls it out of an Azure queue, does the calculation, s writes it back in some other queue, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then it shuts down. Right. And yeah. that other process is constantly starting the latest version of my container with that calculation right. logic. And then I have a continuous delivery process which publishes a new version of that container, and my batch program is still running, and it just pulls out the latest version, does an other calculation, Right, with the and new version. With the new version, and my system is not down. So you no longer have this idea of I deploy a new version of the app. Exactly. You're exactly. literally just slipstreaming exactly. the individual. And by the way, it's fast. Yeah. <laughs> not, on, not on Windows yet. <laughs> it Good should point. be on Linux. It's frequently fast. Yeah. yeah, but someday it will be, but they're just getting it all running now. We sure hope so. Yeah, it's, it's definitely exciting yeah. times for that whole yeah. container space. And I saw that the Azure container service went 
GA. Yeah. So, but that is basically Linux containers. Yeah, it's Linux containers with uh, Mesosphere. Um, right. So yeah, it's it's a different game than uh, yeah. what we are used to. Uh, What's GA right now is bringing people who are already using containers from the open source world into Azure, as opposed to right. folks like us in the Windows world wanting to start to use containers that still yeah we're very still much scratching the well, we, we are still busy with doing the mindset like what is a container yeah. and uh, it's, it's not want, a virtual machine. I want containers on the Windows desktop. Yeah, I, I want I all want every app in my machine is in a separate especially container. Especially the browser. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very that much. That evil, no. ugly piece of software. Right? I actually tried setting up uh, with my new Windows 10 machine, putting a, creating a VM with just for the browsing. Right. right. Yeah, that didn't work. Yeah. No, I mean, just, right. Too much work, right? Yeah, well, the thing is, when you when you want to go to a website, you want to go there. You don't want to wait for stuff to spin up. And yeah. 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 It but needs yeah. to just happen. You can really incorporate it into your developer workflow. We, yeah. we, we had a colleague running on Linux, and he, he has his containers with for example an npm version inside the container right and did, then he did some aliasing and he just starts npm uh, and then in with an alias he starts that container with npm and he right. just redirects everything to that container doing npm in a specific version really smart. so it's real the developer box can also be containerized and right and very clean yeah. and very clean I mean, certainly it's an issue i've dealt with over the years as a consultant where i can't contaminate one customer's code with another one's, you know, you're installing libraries and things on your machine, and you're mm -hmm. trying to work on more than one project, and next thing you know, it's like, you know, maybe I should run each of these in a VM, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which makes all my work equally slow. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one important thing, I think, about containers, and uh, because you're alluding to the fact that you might want to have a browser in a container, right. but containers are still non-UI. Right. So there is no possibility to do UI in a container, so it might take a while well, before what, we get there. Yeah, what I really want is really good app virtualization on mm -hmm. the right. desktop, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, good and, and app virtualization don't seem to go together yet. Yeah, no. but I wanted to call it out because I see a lot of confusion with people right. that they want to use containers and they think they spin up more or less Windows in there. Like right. VMs, uh, that's yeah. not the case. Yeah, it's, it's like the server it is. part, it's the command line stuff, the, the APIs, but you cannot do any UI. Right. Absolutely, that's important. Yeah, good enough. What's next for you guys after so, your talk? Your so talks. After this, uh, I will do VS Live in mm -hmm. Boston. Oh, cool. uh, that's in June. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, uh, well, even Wednesday, we take uh, James Montemango up to uh, Hilversum, and uh, he will do uh, um, a meetup there with us. So Great. That's also cool. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? I'm, uh, I'm doing NDC Oslo in the June. And, we'll uh, be there. Yeah, great. Okay, so let's meet there. <laughs> and uh, I'm also running a uh, ALM meetup in the Netherlands, so we will uh, do a meetup somewhere in June. And uh, Martin Hinshelwood, some of the ALM uh, gurus, I think, around mm -hmm. the world is, uh, is a guest. So he comes over and uh, will speak to us about scaling Agile and stuff. Cool. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, yeah, lots of uh, fun things coming up. Marcel, Rene, thank you guys for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Okay. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MCC.